Good morning. Good morning. Uh, may Christ be, be with you as, as you're gathered here in, in worship today. Um, as, uh, as we're gathering uh, this day on the, the second Sunday of, of Epiphany, I'm um, sort of been reflecting on and, and preparing to, to preach this week on, on this one simple question. Um, it's sort of the question that I think much of the scriptures sort of force us to, to contend with, and, and particularly the Gospels really force us to, to wrestle with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? As you read through the Gospels, this sort of, it comes up over and over and over again. It comes up every time we see Jesus perform these signs and these wonders, like we saw in John chapter 2 this morning. It comes up when Jesus says things to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And I think it's really ultimately the the question that's at the center of the scriptures is who is Jesus? Who is he? And as we come before him to to worship him, who is it that we are actually coming before? And in fact, that's probably an appropriate question to ask during the season of Epiphany. As Pastor Brad said last week in, in his sermon, the season of Epiphany and is this season of of a manifestation, a revelation. It's the revelation of of Christ to the nations. And so as Christ is revealed to us, we probably need to stop and ask, well, what is it about Him that's been revealed? Who is He? What have we come to know and, and learn about Him? What do we see about Him in these signs that He performs? What do we learn about Him in His life, in His death, His teaching and His resurrection. Who, after all, is this Jesus? And this is central in in this reading that we have from John chapter 2, where Jesus performs the first of His signs and wonders. Now, throughout the, the New Testament, and throughout particularly the Gospels, we see the miracles of Jesus referred to primarily with this designation, signs and wonders. Signs meaning that that these miracles aren't intended to be something as an end in and of themselves. Jesus doesn't just come to perform these mighty deeds, but all of these signs are supposed to be a hint, a revelation, a manifestation of who Jesus is and who He has come to be and what He has come to do. And so here we see the first of His signs, this great miracle where He turns water into wine begins like this, John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So here we have this stage set, this scene that is drawn up for us. Jesus is there in Galilee, where the early part of his ministry takes place. And and he and his disciples are are at a wedding, and, and his mother is there as well. 
Now, this is, would be a pretty common scene in that day. Weddings were not so much a, a family affair as much as they were a community affair. So if you were to have a wedding like that in Seattle, you might invite all of Lake City into Shoreline. The, the, the entire surrounding neighborhood would be there. So it's no surprise that both Jesus and his mother and his disciples are all there present at this wedding. But then something rather uncommon and and perhaps even rather shameful happens for the family hosting this wedding. They run out of wine. This this lengthy, days-long celebration was coming to a close and the wine begins to run out. So Jesus' mother, she comes up to Jesus and says to him, they've run out of wine. And, And the implication here then being, Maybe you can do something about this. Now, what's interesting here is that in this entire sign, this entire miracle of Jesus' water to wine, it seems like this interaction with his mother is the point that commentators seem to spend the most time with. And maybe it's just an indication that Freud and the things that he had to say about mothers and sons, he was on to something, I don't know. But what's clear here is that there is something peculiar about Jesus' interaction with his mother. He responds with these words, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now now some have wondered, is, is Jesus angry with his mother? Is he sort of rebuking her for making this request of him? Is he being sort of curt or disrespectful to his mother? What's really going on here between Jesus and his mom? When he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, first of all, that that phrase, woman, what does this have to do with me? This is not really a sign of, of disrespect, In fact, if you look throughout the Gospels, this is Jesus' common way of addressing females. And it's a very common way in the Greek to to address females. Woman, gunaika, what does this have to do with me? This is a common way for a man to address a woman. But it is a somewhat uncommon way for a son to address his mother. There's some distance that Jesus puts here between himself and and the woman who carried him for nine months and raised him and all of that good stuff. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. It's a common phrase that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels, and particularly in John's Gospel. And whenever Jesus talks about his hour, this is synonymous with Jesus' moments of glorification, which is in John's Gospel, his passion. So when Jesus responds to this, it's sort of an odd thing for him to say, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not time for me to die yet. What does turning water into wine have to do with Jesus' death and his glorification, his eventual resurrection? You see, here is what Jesus is getting at with this response to his mother's request. There's sort of a question behind the question. Jesus is responding, saying, why are you asking me this? 
Are you coming to me as a mother making a request of your son? Or are you coming to me as the Lord and Savior of all things whose signs and wonders will one day lead to my death? Are you coming to me as a mother coming to her son? Or are you coming to me as Lord over everything? Woman, what does this have to do with me? Why is it that you think that I'm able to do something about this? And I think this response of Jesus invites us to ask ourselves a question. How is it that we come to Jesus? I'm not talking about sort of the conversion to faith or or anything like that, but when we come before Jesus... When we make requests of Him, how is it that we come to Him? Do we come to Him as sort of this buddy? A a pal who just wants to sort of affirm us in every single choice we make? Do we come to Him as sort of this like spiritual janitor who's there to just kind of clean up all the messes that we've made of our lives? Do we come to Him just sort of saying... Jesus, I I really kind of screwed up and I made a big, big mess. I I really, really got myself into hot water. Can you please bail me out? Do we go to him as as nothing more than just sort of a, a therapist? One to talk us through all of our problems. Or or maybe like a motivational speaker who, who can kind of pump us up so we can achieve great things. How is it that we come to Jesus? Because while in in some ways He does do those kinds of things that we maybe ask of Him, if we're going to come to Him as as a friend, as one who can clean up our messes, if we're going to come to Him with our problems and our difficulties, if we're going to come to Him looking for strength and motivation, we also have to come before Him as who He says He is, and that is Lord over everything. And his mother actually gets this. Because notice that when she responds, what she is not doing is ignoring what he has just said. No, she is saying she understands. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Follow him. He's Lord over everything. He can control this situation. He knows what's going on. So listen to him. Follow him. Do whatever he tells you. And the same is true of us. If we're going to come to Jesus with our problems, with our difficulties, we need to do whatever he tells us. We need to follow him. And so when he tells us what we're called to do with our money, when He calls us to live lives of discipline when it comes to our time, when it comes to our sexual choices, when it comes to our consumption of entertainment, the ways that we're called to use our entire lives, we're called to do whatever He asks us. Because Jesus is not merely a friend or a therapist or a motivational speaker. He is not just creation's spiritual janitor who cleans up all of our spills. He is Lord over everything. So we come to Him not only with our sin that needs forgiveness, 
not only our pain that needs healing, but we do whatever he asks us. We seek to follow him where he tells us to go. You know, I think that one of the reasons we often are afraid to trust in Jesus as Lord and not just a friend or a therapist or something like that is because we're afraid of scarcity. That maybe doesn't quite click. Allow me to explain. Um, I am not an economist by any, way, by any means. Uh, but if you look up the, the definition of scarcity, is scarcity is sort of the basic economic problem that really all sort of economic theories and, and many political theories have to deal with. Scarcity is this gap that exists between limited resources and theoretically unlimited wants and desires. So a lot of economists and, and political scientists, what are they wrestling with? How do we distribute resources? How do we divide things up when things are limited but wants are unlimited? So most of of our time and, and most of our political conversations revolve around this topic of scarcity. And I think most of us, we live our lives terrified of scarcity. And so we're terrified that if we let go, if we're going to trust Jesus with everything, then there's not going to be enough for me. That if I let go and I live generously, giving away what I've been given, is there going to be enough left over for number one? Or if I really trust Jesus and follow him where he's called me to go, Am I going to miss out on what's going on over here? Am I going to miss out on the experiences that my desires may be promising? Am I going to miss out on what the crowd is doing if I follow Jesus? And so we fail to trust Jesus as Lord because we're afraid of scarcity, We're afraid that there's a limited number of experiences, a limited amount of wealth, a limited amount of opportunity. And so I need to follow that and I need to, to cling to that and harbor that and build up as much of that as I can. And if I follow Jesus rather than trusting myself, then I might be following him into a life that is marked by scarcity. But if we're spending all of our time afraid to trust Jesus because we're afraid of living in scarcity, then we miss out on this truth and this promise that the Messiah has come not to invite us into a life of scarcity, but into one of abundance. Take a look at what happens in the miracle that follows. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted water now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The master called the feast of the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus here, after this request has been made, he simply tells these servants to go and and fill these these jars of wine. These jars being about 25 gallons each. So there's six of them. So Jesus has them fill up 150 gallons of water. And as they draw them out, it is no longer wine, but it or is no longer water, but this water has now become wine. 150 gallons, which at this point in the ceremony was an unnecessary amount of wine. This is substantial amount. This is, this is excessive. This is, is more than they would have even possibly needed. But Jesus gives them not just barely enough wine. He gives them wine in abundance. And not only that, he gives them the best wine. He gives them the choice wine. Right? The master of the feast, he tastes it, and, and what does he exclaim? He says, you know what? Everyone else, they serve the, the good wine first, and then once people have drunk freely, that's when they bust out the three-buck chuck or the franzia or whatever it is. But instead, you have saved the best for last. Jesus pours out not just enough, but he gives in abundance. And he does not give something that is second rate, but he gives his very best. And here he indicates that in his presence... His coming, His presence with us in creation, it means not scarcity. It means abundance. It means plenty. It means more than enough. Now before you stop me and say that sounds like a bunch of prosperity gospel nonsense, let me first clarify what I mean here. Trusting that God is a God of abundance does not mean living in excess. Does not mean using and abusing and wasting as we please. Trusting in a God of abundance does not mean trusting that no matter what, I will have a prosperous and wealthy life. But trusting in a God of abundance means that we trust there is no good gift that he will withhold from us. And if there is something that we have asked of him that he has not granted us, we trust that he has something better for us in store. Trusting in a God of abundance, it does not mean trusting in prosperity, it does not mean living in excess, but it means that we trust That we have a God who is good, who is kind, who is gracious, who will not withhold his blessings from us. Has he not displayed that? What has God withheld from us that we need most? 
We have the God who has created everything, who continues to provide for everything and protect everything. He is the one who who has made and sustains our very lives. And not only that, but he has poured out in abundance the thing that we need most. And when we chose scarcity by following our desires by wandering off into sin, by turning from the God who longs to provide for us, what did God do? He poured out forgiveness and redemption in abundance by giving His own Son on the cross for us. And it was there as His Son bled and died for the forgiveness of all creation that we received every single thing that we need. It's in that gift of baptism that our God didn't just clean us up. He didn't just sort of say, ah, you'll, you'll do. No, it's in baptism that we are buried with Christ. And when we are buried with Christ, our sins remain dead and buried as we are raised with Christ and clothed with His perfection. Those perfect, spotless robes of His righteousness is what we wear. We have a God who every single time we gather around his table pours out in abundance life and forgiveness as we taste his goodness and we receive the body and blood of his son Jesus. We have a God who is not scarce with his love. He is not scarce with his mercy. He is not scarce with his forgiveness, but he pours out again and again and again every single thing we need and more. And when it comes to his love for us, when it comes to his promises, when it comes to the blessings of forgiveness, there is always enough to go around. Because every single time someone comes to believe and take hold of these promises, these promises don't become more scarce, they, they simply multiply. More people receive this love. More people receive this grace. More people receive this forgiveness. And it never runs out. It's not merely the 150 gallons of choice wine, but it is limitless forgiveness, limitless grace, limitless mercy. He pours it all out in abundance. And the promise that he has for us is not just forgiveness right now, but the promise that he has is there is always more. And there is more to come. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. Paul is not talking about us getting every single thing we want. Paul is not saying if you pray hard enough, you'll get your BMW or your Lexus or that mansion. No, he is saying that because God has given his own son for you, you can be certain that he will give you every single part of his kingdom when he comes again. He will not withhold a piece of it from you. We have a God who is not scarce. We have a God who does not even merely just give us enough, but we have a God of abundance. And so our call as people who have come to know, who have seen, 
who have received in abundance is to simply trust in that God of abundance. We're called to trust in and follow Jesus wherever he calls us. We are called to, as his mother instructs us, do whatever he asks with every part of our life. And as we trust in and follow this Jesus, may we find and remember that we have a God who is not scarce with his blessings. He is not scarce with his love. He is not scarce with his forgiveness. But he has poured them all out for us in abundance through the blood of his Son. Amen? Amen.